right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very, very excited to have on Jason Wang, who is the creator of Free World. Jason, welcome to the show. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you, Matt? I am doing fantastic. It's a Friday afternoon, and let me tell you, I'm just feeling amazing. So that means the week was good to me. So I'm doing great. It's good to hear. And I'm stoked to be talking to you. You're, you're, from, from what I have seen so far, the story and the company is like incredible. So I'm excited to dive in and get an inside look. And with that, let's just go into it. What is Free World? What are you working on? Yeah, so Free World is a nonprofit, and our mission is to help keep 26 million ex-felons prison-free through living wage jobs. And more specifically, we train ex-felons to be commercial truck drivers through online classes and behind-the-wheel training with our trucking school partners. Uh, the student doesn't pay a dime until they're hired, and uh, as long as they're making over $42,000 a year. Uh, this allows us to align our incentives with the incentive of the student, because we don't get paid unless they get paid. Okay, so I definitely have tons of questions. I think I want to start off with a little bit of the backstory. Uh, where did you get this idea from? Why did you start Free World? Yeah, so, so to, on the question of why, um, it's, it's because I was a previous tenant of the criminal justice system. Um, so just to sum up my story very quickly, um, you know, I grew up in poverty. My parents were, uh, you know, first-time immigrants to the country. Um, my father attempted to kill me several times when I was young. I attempted suicide three times by the age of 10. Uh, my parents got divorced at 11. At 13, I joined a gang. Um, at 15, I was incarcerated for a first-degree felony, aggravated robbery, and they gave me 12 years. Um, and after going into the prison system and really meeting a lot of the other people that were my roommates there, uh, I started to realize that we had a whole lot in common, um, and we all had a hope. And that hope was is that at some point in the future, we'd be able to dig ourselves out of our rut. Um, but uh, we all felt that it was impossible. So, yeah, that's, wow, that's, that's incredible. I, a bunch of questions pop up in my head. I think the, the first question is, you know, right now you, you, we're on this podcast, you started a company or, or, you know, a nonprofit. So you obviously have in some capacity gotten out of your rights. I'm kind of curious if you can tell the, the story on how you uh, started standing on, on two feet and two legs, and then we'll get into how you do that for others or how you help, help, you help others do that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I first went to prison, I blamed the entire world and did not take responsibility for my own actions. Um, and it wasn't until I started to realize, well, let me back up. So, so I get incarcerated. I get arrested right in front of my mom. And my mom's a single mom at this point. She's working, you know, 12, 14 hour night shifts in order to pay a bill. She's not educated. She's making minimum wage. Um, so she didn't really have a chance to raise me as a child. Um, so I get arrested in front of her. I go to uh, juvenile court and my mom pulls out her entire life savings, which is $10,000 at the time, um, in order to pay for her attorney to, to essentially try to get me out of, uh, out of going to prison. And um, so I end up getting 12 years anyways, and I go into the prison system, and my mom is so heartbroken 
because I'm the only son. She's incredibly heartbroken. And so she used to always say that even though that you're physically in prison, mentally and emotionally, I'm in prison with you. And uh, she would drive 14 hours every single weekend to come see me in visitation for two hours. And so it was in visitation, seeing my mom and my grandma cry in front of me, that I started to realize that I was the cause of their pain and that it was my actions that put, put me in this situation. And I, I started to see how I was affecting her and her life and how much she actually loved me. Um, and, and that was a huge turning point for me. Got it. This is, appreciate you sharing all of this. So now let's, let's, you know, I, I have a ton of questions that may or may not be appropriate just because like, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't talk about this topic a lot. So if something's like not appropriate, oh. just let me know. <laughs> um, I'm so, but the first thing that I am curious about is, you know, I'm sure as you just mentioned, there's plenty of people that you met in prison that all had this hope to to dig themselves out and uh, some of them maybe most of them have the ability ability to if given the shot but now that your your company now gives them the shot how do you identify the what the ones that you think really do want to dig them out out of uh, dig themselves out of a hole and they do it versus the ones that may have ulterior motivations or intentions or just don't don't have the strength to do it uh, if you know what i mean yeah so so in terms of um in terms of having the strength to do it, uh, we're, we're, we're incredibly supportive. Uh, I think that the ones that uh, basically are joining our program out of nefarious reasons or are, are not looking to really try to get a, a legitimate chance at life, they wash out very quickly. Uh, our program is very vigorous and it, it, it happens very quickly. So an example is somebody will come to us um, and they will apply on our website and we go through the interview process. But basically from application to getting into school, to getting a job, um, it takes on average about 45 days. So, I mean, it's just an incredibly quick process. And then from there, you know, we support them for a period of three years to make sure their incomes continue to rise and they're, that they're on the right track. So let's talk about what, what goes on in the program. Let's talk about like, it, let's say, let's actually walk through the user experience. So I, let's say a year ago, I, I get arrested. Um, do how do I how does an average uh, student of yours one hear about you? Is it is it in jail? Is it outside of jail? How do they hear about you? Then how do they get involved? How, how do they get started? Yeah, well, so so if it's okay with you, I kind of like to to go back and yeah, definitely examine the why we do this business. Yes. Um, so imagine, for example, you're an investor, and I come up to you and I say that I have a hotel business. And with this hotel business, uh, whenever a guest checks in, they stay on average about four and a half years. And for each year that goes by, uh, they pay about $31,000 in order to stay in your hotel. And on average, about 83% of the customers that end up checking into your hotel end up returning back to your hotel. And on top of that, 70% of these folks that have kids, they're, 70% of the kids will end up going to your hotel at some point. So as an investor, you're probably looking at this and you're like, holy crap, this is a massively investable business. It's, I mean, it's just, it seems amazing, right? You have all this customer retention and all this other stuff. Well, that's the criminal justice system. And um, you know, we're currently warehousing about 2.3 million people in prisons across America 
and 73 million people have criminal records. So that is the problem that we're trying to attack. Um, when people are released from prison, even though they're told that uh, you go to prison to pay your debt to society, um, when they get out, it's like they're wearing invisible handcuffs for the rest of their lives because they can't get a job. They can't get housing. And so what is the person to do when you get out and you're, you aren't able to sustain your own lifestyle, right? Um, so that's why we created this program to begin with. That's, that's awesome. It's, I, so I, I want to share a very quick story. So I, uh, when was it? I don't know. Like six months ago, my girlfriend and I were getting uh, dinner at this adult at this adult family's house and, uh, um, you know, friends of ours, friends of Madeline's and the, the, the male, the, the, the dad said, Hey, like I volunteer at the local prison. I know you play guitar. You should come and you should come and play guitar for them. Like it, it's, it's incredible experience. And I didn't think like, I didn't think I, I didn't haven't done it, you know, yet. But, but when I saw you on Twitter kind of talking about the same thing, uh, that's like, Hey, like these people are, they're people too. And like, maybe they made mistakes, but like they're people and people get second chances. Like, I'm kind of curious, like, do you consider yourself the second chance for a lot of these, a lot of these people or students, or how do you consider yourself in their, in their life? Uh, or how do you position yourself? Yeah. I mean, this, this is my second chance to give second chances to others. Um, I, I've made terrible decisions in my past and I did things that I re regret to this day. And, uh, after going to the prison system and getting out, I felt like there was, I felt like I had a debt that I could never repay. Um, not only like financially, but emotionally to my victims, my communities, and especially to my mother. Um, and that is not uncommon with the guys that go through this program. Uh, for the first chance, for, for the first time, uh, there's a program that's made up of ex-felons that understands what they are going through, that looks like them, and who are legitimately doing everything in our power to help them, uh, you know, create a life for themselves after prison. Because if you don't have any type of family support, nobody out there is helping you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get released from prison with a see you back soon. I mean, it's, it's a rotating door. So, before your nonprofit existed, is it is it literally that you know they they serve their their sentence and they go out in the world? And I mean, this is probably a very basic question, but what are they what are they expected to to do? Like, how how does one build a life, any sort of life after that um, before free world and now? that free world exists, I'd love to get into a little bit of the mechanics on how you get them up on two feet and how you let them set up a life for themselves. Yeah, so, so here's, a, here's a, a common problem that, that all of our guys go through. So first of all, uh, the people that are in a program, on average, they spend about 10 years in prison. And so we're not dealing with nonviolent drug offenders. We're dealing with people um, that many consider the worst of the worst. And I see the exact opposite out of these folks. Um, so typically what happens is that you get a release date, you go for your parole board and they say yes or no, whether or not you can get released and you get really, really excited, but a part of you feels really scared, um, because you know that when you walk out of the gates, the outside world does not care about you at all. Matter of fact, you're an underclass that is forgotten about and that every single time that you go and look for a house or a job or, or anything in general, people will just slam doors in your face. 
So a part of you is going to feel like, you know what, it's actually better to stay in prison. And I, I know it sounds really odd, but here's, here's the reality, um, because I, I, I felt this way. Um, when you're in prison, especially for a long period of time, um, you build a life for yourself and you might have a job or you might have respect and rank within your gang um, and you know what's around the next corner. Um, the world is very simple and you know what to expect. And when you get out of prison, the world has changed so quickly that you don't know what to expect. And if you don't have any family support, then it's just very, very scary. So then you get released and at the gate, they give you 200 bucks and um, you know, they might take some of that money to use for a bus pass or whatever deal is, but then you go to the place that you're being paroled from. Um, some of these guys are homeless, or if you're lucky, you have a family member that you can live with. Uh, but believe it or not, there are laws in California that say that if you have a felony, you're not allowed to stay with other people that have felonies, or you're not allowed to communicate with anybody else that has a felony. Um, and in many of these households, you know, it's generational recidivism. I mean, the, the, these guys have all gone to prison, so they, they can't even spend time with their families. Um, so you're homeless on the streets, you don't have an ID, uh, you can't get a job, and parole requires you to do all of these things, and you have no idea how to do it. And by the time you finally get an ID and some sort of documentation to prove who you are, 60 days have gone by. And like, you've just now gotten your ID. <laughs> you know, so it's just incredibly depressing. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I can't imagine how hard that is. I, I literally can't. But, but you, but you can, which is the reason why you started this. Like, it's the reason why you started this. I want to hear about what's the now the what's the the alternate path. So, um, I, I'm very intrigued to just know. One, it sounds like a basic question, but like, how do they even, you know, how do they even hear about you? Like, they're probably not surfing the web every day. So my first question is, how do they know that you exist? Or how do you know that they exist? Um, how does that work? Yeah, so uh, we, we go into parole offices and basically, you know, advertise our services. We go to nonprofit partners in the area that help people with criminal histories. And we basically tell them about our program. And then they will essentially tell other people uh, to, to try us out. And once people get into our program, many end up falling in love with it. And so they end up telling their friends and they tell their friends. And all of a sudden we have this huge pool of people that are really interested in our program. Um, how we overcome a lot of the challenges is number one, we do everything remotely. Um, so many people that come out of prison uh, can get a free phone, um, like a welfare phone. And as long as they can get access to Wi-Fi they can get onto our website, apply on there, and during the interview process, we do everything through Zoom. So we'll interview them over Zoom, and if they do get accepted into our program, we get them onboarded onto Slack. Um, if they don't have housing, we work with our nonprofit partners to get them housing. If they need transportation to go to and from different locations, uh, we have a partnership with Lyft, where we'll send a driver out there to go pick them up and take them wherever they need to go. Um, they start their education with an online instructor that teaches them everything they need to know in order to pass their first exam. Um, if they don't have their birth certificate, ID, social security card, we can get all that stuff online and have it mailed to them. Um, so so we, we just surround them with a, a huge level of support. And what's pretty cool on our Slack channel is on the, on the good news channel, um, people get to actually see other people that have gone through our program in the past and see that they're succeeding. 
And so it's motivation for them to stick with it and, and to see it all the way through. So I want to go back to one of the first points you mentioned, which is it starts with a, with a Zoom interview. Um, kind of can you walk me through an interview? What are some of the questions you ask? What are you looking for? What are you trying to avoid? How, how does the interview go? Yeah, we, we've gone through several iterations of interviews. And what we learned is that the interview process tells us nothing about the motivation and drive to actually succeed in this program. And so the interview is actually very, very easy. Um, we go through whatever they put in the application and basically verify it. Um, and then we ask some questions that will kind of give us a heads up on whether or not they're being honest. And being honest is the most important thing for us. So uh, an example is, is that I'll ask them, have you ever been involved with a gang click or set? And um, if they spent you know, significant time behind bars and they answer no to that question, I already know what's up. Right. So like, you know, so, so it's just asking a couple of questions to, to, you know, see how honest they're going to be. And then after that, you know, 90% of the people that come to an interview end up getting accepted. And the ones that don't get accepted are the ones that basically take a look at our program and say, you know what, this is not for me. All right. This is, this is so interesting. So you, you accept almost everyone and you, and you, but you based it on honesty, like, are they, are they honest? Um, why did you, like why specifically honesty? Obviously it's an important trait, you know, in the world, but I feel like there are, are several important traits uh, that you could look for. So why'd you pick honesty as the main, the main determinant? Yeah, so, so honesty for us is, because if they lie about the most, you know, just the most topical questions, they're gonna lie to us all throughout the program. And we'd rather cut those people out before they even get started. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, you, you mentioned this uh, a little bit already, but I want to I want to rehash. So you so you do that you do the interview, you accept you know all, all these people, and then they. I guess what I don't understand is I understand the support that you provide, which is obscenely awesome. Like every all the partnerships you're mentioning, you know, good for you for for doing this. It, it is is an incredible. But is there a, um, is, I guess, is the program the support or is there like education? Is there like, like, I guess, can you walk me through a little more of the experience of if I was going through your program, what other things I'm able to do? Or is it mainly the support? Because that's what you need when you, when you are in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it's the support and education. So, for example, in order to get a license, a CDLA license, which is a commercial tr truck driving license, um, I guess it's important to first um, explain why we chose the trucking industry. So um, when you look at truck drivers all across the U.S., um, they, there is an incredible amount of demand for truck drivers. They can't get enough. And ex-felons represent a huge population that is hungry just to get a job. And so we essentially took a look at the, the labor supply and demand and just connected the two uh, together. Um, so in the trucking industry, number one, it's very cheap to train somebody to get their CDLA license. It's very fast, we can do it in about 30 days. And once they get into a trucking job, um, their first year they make on average about 50, 60,000, but within two years they can, they can make over 100,000. So the income growth is phenomenal. Um, so for our program, you know, really the, the point at which we know if they're gonna make it is 
uh, if they get their permit. So in order to go to school and get your license, you first have to get a permit, just like you would with a regular driver's license. You have to pass a test first, um, and then you get some behind the wheel training, and then after that, you go for a drive test. Um, so we have an online instructor that teaches them everything they need to know in order to get the permit. And really what we're looking for here is, do they follow instructions and do they actually attend class? Because we have class seven days a week at all times during the day, and it's all done online. So you don't need transportation to go anywhere. You can do it on the comfort of your own couch. So if they attend a minimum of three classes, that's when we get them their documentation and everything else. That, that's when we start to invest in them. And we found that to be the most effective tool to really determine whether or not they're going to be successful in this program or not. And uh, so right now you are matching them up or you're trying to get them jobs uh, in the trucking industry. I'm curious, is that what is that going to be the primary job you focus on for the foreseeable future? Are there other types of jobs that you're interested in matching them up with? Or how do you think about the job market? Yeah, so, you know, jobs are the last thing I'm worried about. Uh, when somebody graduates within two weeks, they, before they even graduate, we've already lined them up with like 10 to 15 job offers. And within two weeks, they're already working. We have 100% employment rate. Um, the trucking industry is just so hungry for drivers that they don't even care about felonies. And they will just basically hire anybody that has a pulse and can drive a truck. Um, we're gonna concentrate on trucking for the foreseeable future. Um, we know at some point that we will have to move off that platform because of self-driving technology. Um, but you know, until that, until that materializes, you know, we're gonna keep running with this program. The other thing that we're doing is we're testing our ISAs. Um, so much like Lambda School, we run an ISA program where it's no cost up front until they get a job. And as long as they're making at least $42,000 a year, they pay back 10% of their income over three years in order to help other people get the same opportunities that they got. So, so, so one thing, I wanna look at this just for a couple of questions away from the emotional side and as like on the business side and like almost the like investor business owner side. You know, in, in business and in startup land, you, you get rewarded the most if you're able to identify like a undervalued asset and invest in them, and then if, when the asset appreciates, great. Like that, that that means your I mean, interest appreciates, et cetera, if it's stocks or whatever. And you are pretty much investing in, uh, would you say, undervalued assets? Like, like how, how do you how do you think about about that sense? And uh, um, I'm just kind of curious. It might be kind of a weird question, but but um, because not a lot of other people are giving them a chance. What do you, what do you, you, how do you think you're going to grow this in the next 10 years? Like, I feel like it's unlimited opportunity because there's not so many people doing stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, I view people that, that have felonies on their records as America's biggest underdogs and certainly the most overlooked talent pool. And we built a program that specifically addresses all the challenges that they go through. And we try to make it as simple as possible and to support them to the fullest extent. And so what that does is that it breeds incredible loyalty to the program, because if you can imagine other programs, they basically make you jump through a whole bunch of hoops because essentially they, they approach this as I don't trust you and you have to prove to me that you're worth trusting before I give you any services. And ours is the other approach where we're like, dude, we'll accept anybody. 
Um, you know, of course you have to attend a couple of classes, but we're not making jump through hoops. And you can, you can attend three classes in one day. Um, and at that point, we'll give you everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, they feel very supported and that they're trusted straight off the bat. And I think that that's why we've had the results that we've had. And this might be a little more of like a, of a deep question, but I am, I am curious. So you're, a lot of these, these people, it sounds like all these people, um, all the, your students, do you call them, are they students or what do you, what do you call them? Like in regards to your program? We call them free agents because I hate okay. them, but for the purpose of this podcast and your audience, um, it's just much easier to say ex felon because everybody understands what that is. For sure. For sure. So, so, I mean, for all of them, at some point, they got to a point in their life where they, they committed a felony, right? They were, they were just, you know, just like you, but, but everyone, you pulled yourself out and they're pulling themselves out too, which means like there's, there's good, like they're good people. So let's go back before the felony, before everything in the beginning to like childhood or like the trauma, like, do you, do you think like, what's your theory on just people who commit felonies? Is it all about environment? Is it like, why do you think these good people in the hearts, why do you think this ends up happening to them or they end up doing this? Like, do you have theories on that? I don't know if I phrased that question right, but like, they're good people, you're proving it. So like, what, what happened, you know? So here, here's an example. So let's say you're a black kid from the hood and your dad is in prison, your mom is a crackhead, your sister is a prostitute, um, the neighborhood that you live in is extremely violent and filled with drugs. And um, for most teenagers, you basically, um, you basically feel as if you're not going to live past the age of 21, that you're gonna get shot dead in the streets um, before, like you, you never grow old because something will happen at some point. And the ones that do grow old, um, they're OGs and they've got money and gold chains and all this other stuff. Um, by the time you hit five years old, you've seen a dead body. And so what do you do, right? Um, there, it, it's not surprising that many of these folks end up resorting to crime because the way that they grew up, crime was a way of survival. Um, and there was no other way. So that doesn't excuse the fact that nobody should commit crime and hurt other people. But until we create a system that truly gives people the ability to pull themselves out of their rut, this is going to continue to happen. And like I talked about before with the you know, criminal justice statistics, 83% of these folks that get released from prison end up back in prison. Like it, it, if you cannot provide for yourself and your family, you will become desperate. And out of desperation, you're gonna do, you're gonna make really poor decisions. So kind of going off of that, that answer, you know, you have a nonprofit. Um, uh, I actually want to get to that in a second. I'm wondering why you did nonprofit versus company, but, but, but right now, like you have a, you have a company that pulls on like, I feel like the heartstrings of like, anyone that hears about what you're doing in a good way, obviously. And like, and me too, like I, I'm very fortunate to, to not know what it's like to grow up in that environment. And I can only imagine, 
you know, what it would be like. And I think a lot of people listening are going to feel the same way. So I'm kind of curious, how do you spread the word? Like, like obviously people talk about it, right? Like obviously it's word of mouth, but I feel like you have the opportunity to like, like anyone you tell this to is gonna, is gonna listen. Um, so how do you actively, I guess, market or get the word out about this? Um, if you're open to sharing. Yeah. So the, the way that we approach this, I mean, we're only a year and a half old and, um, we, we followed Paul Graham's advice and the advice is in the very beginning, do things purposely that don't scale. Um, the second thing is get a hundred customers to really love you. Um, and then the third thing is create a monopoly. Now in the nonprofit world, we're not creating a monopoly. Um, but we essentially followed those steps. So we are focused, um, we're, we're focused in Stockton, California, um, which is where we have our trucking school and everything else. Um, we tested our program there. We're testing our ISA program there. And we've reached a point that we feel like we're ready to scale. Now, with people with criminal histories, um, once they find a program that, that they really love, word spreads like wildfire. Um, just in the past couple of months, our applications have tripled and we've done no marketing whatsoever. Uh, so um, the same goes for inside of prison as well. So we've chosen uh, on purpose not to deploy our program in prison quite yet until we reach um, you know, a critical, critical mass of cities all across the United States, uh, all across California because I, I call it like prison Twitter. As soon as one person finds out about an amazing program, everybody wants to do it. And if we cannot serve them once they get released, then you know, they, they become so disappointed. And the last thing we want to do is kill hope. So we're mostly focused with the post-release um, individuals and you know, we, we've had absolutely no problem at all finding customers. And then I'm just kind of curious, why do you pick the, the nonprofit structure versus like a C corp or an LLC? Um, how, kind of, how do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the way I got my start out here in California is because, is because of this incredible man, um, Matt Mosheri and Matt Mosheri is a, uh, extreme, like he, he's brilliant and, um, he, is extremely successful. He sold his company for quite a bit of money. Um, he created several films that won awards. Uh, he was an investor. Now he's a CEO coach for some of the biggest tech companies all throughout San Francisco and the Bay Area. And a couple of years ago, the films that he created um, were based in Brazil and New York. And it was in like the poor slums. And what he realized is that these folks in poverty, um, if given an opportunity to get a good paying job, that they would not resort to crime because that's the last thing they want to do to get trapped in this poverty cycle. Um, they want to call themselves out of it. Um, so in his spare time, he would essentially find a couple of ex-felons and pay for them to go to school. And he found that many of these folks could actually go through school and succeed and not go back to prison um, once they got that, that certification or that license. So he reached out to me and we had met at a previous prison event years ago. And he said, hey, Jason, you know, the, I have this concept, but I, I'd love to be able to scale this nationwide. Um, and I'd love for you to be the founder and CEO of this new organization moving forward. And we will fund you uh, completely to, to get this thing off the ground. Um, so that was really the start of the organization. Um, he uses his private foundation in order to fund the growth of the company. 
And so I think that there are a lot of, you know, first of all, it's this, um, we already have the infrastructure as a nonprofit. Uh, but second of all, you know, we want to stay mission aligned. And there, there hasn't been a company that I've seen so far that works in the criminal justice space and um, has been really, really successful as a for-profit. So we think that we have the ability to do, do so through our ISA program. Um, but until we fully test this and get the data, um, you know, it's just, you know, an easier path to just stay in nonprofit. Wow, that, what a story. That's, um, I, I, I first heard that name, uh, I'm going to mispronounce the last name, Matt, sure. Matt Mokery. But yeah, so it's funny. So the first time I heard that name was on Jason Calacanis' podcast when he had on the the CEO <laughs> of um oh crap what uh, uh I'm blanking but the CEO of like a company and and Matt mentors this guy and like Jason kept butchering the name and so am I because it's a hard last name. Anyways, what a story that that's amazing. I mean, if you can get the funding and for for a in for a type of company like this, I feel like nonprofit does make the most sense, right? Um. Cool. Well, I have a couple more questions for you. Uh, you know, thank you so much for coming on. This has just been fascinating and 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 uh, mind opening. I'm kind of another question, and it's another, it's one of those where I'm not going to know exactly how to phrase it, so I'm just going to you know, start talking. But how? So I I will fully admit um, myself. Like I grew up in a I'm privileged, right? Like I'm very lucky for for how I grew up, and I did not have to deal with pretty much anything that you mentioned that these get that these 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 guys had to guys and girls had to like deal with, right? And I can't like understand that much, but I, I am inspired by what you're doing. But I kind of get the feeling that a lot of people listening are you know where I'm at or somewhere in the middle, and they can't actually like fully understand. How do you talk to people so that they can understand? Kind of like what you've done with me. You got really raw, vulnerable, but like, how do you make people who don't understand, understand? Yeah, yeah, I think we're, I think I understand where you're going with this. So, um, you know, on the surface, it's very easy to just write these people off um, because yes, they have done terrible things and, um, and, you know, I'm not proud of what I did in my past. I'm not proud of the things that the men and women that have gone through my program have done in their past. But let's look at reality. So in reality, we really have four different options here, right? Um, number one, you can kill them all. And uh, I was incarcerated in Texas, which is, which is a tough on crime state. A third of all executions in the US happens in Texas and they're pretty proud of it. So that's one option. The second option is you can lock them up and throw away the key. And in California, we spend five times more on incarceration than we do on education. The third option is to let them serve their time and be released with no support. And like I said before, these guys return to prison in droves because they can't get a job, they can't get, a, they can't get housing, they, they, they're barred from like every opportunity that you can think of. And then the fourth option is let's give them an opportunity to earn a living wage and support themselves and their families and um, put them in jobs where they will pay taxes, um, you know, because they're in a job, they're not committing crime anymore. You now have a father in the household, 95% of the people that are in prison are male. Um, out of those four options, which one would you choose? I mean, absolutely the latter. I mean, it sounds, 
it's it's like almost common sense, but it almost it almost needs to be like laid out like that for people to to understand, you know. Um, but yeah, definitely the latter. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's ultimately what we're trying to get at. Um, you know, what what is not commonly known is that in America, ninety five percent of the people that go to prison will be released at some point. And so ultimately, what type of neighbor do you want to have? Do you want to have somebody who is angry and desperate? Or do you want to have somebody who is hardworking and taking care of their families? And once you wrap your mind around that, it becomes a very easy decision for why you should support this type of work. How, so I usually ask this kind of question at the end in a very light manner, um, but I want to ask like a version of it now, um, even though we are nearing the end. Like how, what are areas of free world that you need the most help with, whether it's, it's money here or, or hours of time here or opportunities there? Like what do you, as a nonprofit, like what asks do you make of, of different groups of people? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question. Um, you know, the easy ask is, you know, financially support our work, but that, that's, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. Um, it is, this work is incredibly tough because there are a lot of people that are making a ton of money incarcerating people. And I already know that the more success that we have and the more people that we serve and keep out of prison, the more that we will be attacked in the future. And more than anything else, it is incredibly difficult to get any type of political support to create meaningful reforms in the space. Um, for politicians, they like to play it safe because all it takes is one person to go out there and screw up and then everybody points their finger to the politician and says, you release this person and now he's wreaking havoc in the world. Um, so if there are thought leaders out there that can really help me put together a plan um, to create meaningful reform in the United States and will also be the owner of that and push that forward, um, that would be incredibly important for us. I love that. That's, um, that's awesome. Hopefully someone listening, you know, knows someone that knows someone or someone listening is that person, right? Who knows with podcasts? Um, my, my, uh, my last my last question for you is I'm pretty sure it's going to be my last question unless something pops up, but like, what have you learned on your, I'm not even going to say on your journey since you started the nonprofit. I'm just going to keep it very open-ended. What have you, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned throughout your life? Uh, it can be from the nonprofit. It could be before the nonprofit. Like what have you learned so far? Yeah. And I think this is, this will apply regardless of, of what your life experiences have been. Um, uh, but forgiveness. So you don't have to be physically in prison to be in prison. So many of us put ourselves into mental and emotional prisons because we haven't learned to forgive ourselves. So if you go back in life and you think about some of the mistakes that you have made, or um, like, let's say, for example, if you missed a promotion or you screwed up on the job, or, you know, you miss your son's baseball game, like we, we tend to beat ourselves up rather than say, look, we made a mistake, we forgive ourselves, and then we move forward in life. And you know, these self-limiting beliefs hold us back from all sorts of things, whether personal, professional, relationship. And so the biggest lesson that I've learned in life is that um, 
to take it easy and, and to forgive yourself because we're all human and we all make mistakes, but our greatest mistakes don't define who we are. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate that answer. Uh, if someone wanted to learn more about you uh, or your company or, or just anything about what you're doing, um, where can they find you on the internet, on Twitter, Facebook, you know, any, anything like that? Yeah, so you can go to our website, www.joinfreeworld.com, or you can follow me on Twitter. So it's Jason Wang, except with two A's. So J-A-S-O-N-W-A-A-N-G. Somebody else took the Jason Wang Twitter handle. <laughs> so it's not Jason Wang. It's Jason Wang. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, uh, I, I can actually relate to the Twitter handle problem. Someone took Matt Sherman with one T. It's a pretty rare name with one T, but it was taken. So I got the Matt underscore Sherman. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I've tried every variation of Jason Wang. <laughs> Unfortunately, somebody else has, has it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. This is a very special episode. I think we'll look back in months and years and, and all, I mean, I'll look back on this episode is one of, one of just the different ones and the, the special ones just because like you're doing incredible work. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, sharing your story, sharing your nonprofit and uh, best of luck with the journey and uh, keep me posted. I, I want to help however I can. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. <laughs>